Hey, everyone. Welcome to another edition of ATL Alts. This is your host, Andre Sindate. I am delighted to be joined today by Michael Gracie, who's a principal at AVL Growth Partners, which is a full-stack CFO. Um, Michael's based in the Denver metro area. I'm really excited to have you on ATL Alts. Welcome to our show. Thank you, Andres. Michael, I uh, was excited to get a chance to talk to you on our show because um, you sit in a really interesting role at AVL Growth Partners, uh, acting as a full-stack CFO for early-stage, mid-stage growth companies, many of which are um, in sectors like SaaS and manufacturing and other things. So uh, I, I want to jump into some of the work that you're doing in AVL uh, Growth Partners does for companies as a full-stack CFO. But before we do that, I like to ask my guess a little bit about how they kind of got to where they are today. So you went to the University of Florida, but uh, what, what part of the country are you from? Where'd you grow up? I'm, well, I'm originally a Floridian, meaning sure. I did not see snow for the first time until I started my first day of work. Um, and that was in Chicago. So I, uh, yeah, I, I bolted out of Florida, headed up to Illinois and started a job in the bankruptcy and reorganization group of a firm called Arthur Anderson which of course, a lot of people have heard about as a result of the Enron scandal. Um, my firm is no longer, uh, but uh, most of my colleagues uh, landed in other places, very happy for them. Uh, I left Anderson a few years before the Enron thing occurred and, and spent some time working as more, sort of an operator in residence for a private equity firm. Uh, did one roll up and one spin off for them. Uh, both of them were tertiarily related to the technology sector. One was in interactive voice response, and the other one was in uh, uh, wide, we'll call it broad-based uh, database management systems of construction licensing and permitting. Um, after that, I pretty much hung out a shingle on my own and had been doing restructure up until about April when I joined ABL, had been doing restructuring work on my own. Usually I'd get a phone call, someone can't make payroll, they're having significant IT issues. They've got a, a distinct problem that has probably put them on the edge of the death spiral of their business. So I, get, I usually get the calls late into the problem. Um, and usually uh, that results in showing up with a fire extinguisher, uh, gaining control of the problem. And then... Um, most of my clients, because I'm pretty effective with said fire extinguisher, generally speaking, have kept me around anywhere from five to seven years to do digital transformation work because I'm fairly handy with a keyboard. So at the end of the day, it's almost in all of those turnaround engagements, I wind up being more or less an interim chief technology officer because once you put in new ERP systems, CRMs, web presence, lead generation funnels and the like, Nobody in the organizations want to administer any of those systems. So I end up being the de facto administrator. The good thing about that is, is that it's been able to assemble a nice tool set and then segueing into the AVL growth thing. Those skills are there. I can disseminate them down to my staff. It really adds a lot of additional value to the organization outside of that pure finance sector. That's, that's uh, terrific uh, as a foundation for us to jump in. So be before we do that, uh, let me ask you about that transition from, from Arthur Anderson, you know, to the private sector. You mentioned uh, working, supporting the private equity or, or a firm in the private equity space. Um, I want to ask you about that because we have a lot of listeners who might be on the earlier stage of their career or kind of thinking about a career in, in uh, the capital markets or alternative investments. Um, and I, I mentor a number of younger professionals and I was asked the question about like if I wanted to get really great training, you know, where, where they should start, maybe in consulting or banking or maybe at a big tech company. What, um, what do you remember about those early years at Arthur Anderson in terms of, you know, just building a base? Did you get a CPA? Um, what, what kinds of things do you, do you recall from those, those years? Well, I did early on uh, pass the CPA exam. So that was kind of a feather in the cap of almost everybody who joined Arthur Anderson, except that being in the bankruptcy and reorg space meant that I didn't really spend a lot of time ticking and tying work papers. 
I spend a lot more time acting in, well, I would call it interim controllership roles, as well as kind of lead negotiator in the bankruptcy courts and acquiring financing. I think that consulting in general provide, if you're in the financial consulting sector, say with a big four firm right now, I think you can gather a lot of experience really early about at the very, very bottom levels of the business. So I wouldn't uh, expect uh, someone straight out of college, you know, even MBA schoolers will generally admit that they might've landed someplace, they have the CFO hat on, but they weren't quite prepared for the day to day. Um, there is a, you get, have a lot of fun uh, sitting in front of bankers, sitting in front of venture capitalists and uh, negotiating term sheets. That's the fun stuff, but developing a base and understanding of the nuances of what's going on in the business is something that I, I'd recommend everybody do. Get started as a staff accountant in an auditing firm. There's no better place to learn the basics than there. Now, is a CPA or, or MBA or CFA required? I don't really think so. And we've obviously seen some entrepreneurs, some very successful entrepreneurs walk out of even undergrad school and wind up, you know, doing extremely well for themselves. So I, 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 I appreciate the credentials. However, I think that there's more value in starting at that bottom rung and being patient as you learn and picking up a, and finding a mentor along the way that can bring you along. Yeah. I, I saw uh, a post the other day that I thought captured the you know, the, the rise in credentialing, which has happened in the economy here with this, you know, all, all these degrees and schools and master's programs. And, you know, one of the, the, the dark side of all that credentialing is that it's expensive. It's expensive to complete. Um, it's expensive in some cases to maintain. But I do think the, on the positive side, one thing it does do um, is I think it does signal. This is the point the author was making is signals that there's a commitment to you know, whether it's earning a CFA or it's earning a CPA, it may not, um, you know, necessarily be a guarantee of long-term career success, um, but at least it signals to somebody that's screening, you know, that this is an individual that's willing to bear down and commit to, you know, whether it's earning, you know, a CFA, which is a pretty tough credential to earn or a CPA or something. So that's, that's great. I appreciate you giving that perspective. I want to talk about the work you're doing at at, uh, at AVL Growth Partners and and more broadly, perhaps just the uh, the outsourced CFO role um, and and the rise of this uh, the CFO role for early and mid stage companies. Can you just characterize um, when does that become as big as it has, and is it only because of what's happening in the economy, how busy everybody has gotten. Obviously, we've gone through COVID. We're still going through COVID. And there's just a limited amount of that type of talent available. When did, maybe you could just characterize the outsourced CFO, the full stack CFO model relative to going out and trying to build an accounting and finance staff traditionally uh, more in a linear fashion. Well, I think first of all, I think the, the idea of the fractional CFO was spawned by the great financial crisis. People realized they needed to be able to work with limited liquidity, smaller budgets, but they still needed to, particularly once they faced an institutional investor, they needed to have all their I's dotted, all of their T's crossed, particularly as it relates to the financial function within the organization. And I think that there are a lot of startup companies in particular out there with a lot of very, very bright, motivated entrepreneurs that are still more or less think that their books and records are sufficient at the seed round if they have receipts in a shoebox. <laughs> and, and or they might be keeping a little schedule of how they're paying people 1099 on a, an Excel spreadsheet. However, and I think this might segue a little further along than you were asking, but it's important to point it out now. Once you re reach, say, a Series B, you're almost absolutely going to have institutional investors involved, and they are absolutely going to want to see both existing financial statements to understand where your burn has been, as well as see 
forecast that sync with history so they can understand where you plan to take next. And that is where I think the, the fractional CFO came in in that having someone who can come into an organization without the six-figure salary, without having to take a tranche of equity, and can provide the guidance for the, and the overview for getting those financial statements produced in place and properly communicated to whatever, whatever investing or lending constituents are involved in the project. Um, so it's part, part need, part budgeting. And I think that's where fractional CFO kind of came to be. And we started seeing more, more, more competition in the space, you know, heading through 2010 and on now where it's actually, you know, and I think at first it wasn't quite acceptable. And now it is very acceptable. I think that almost every client that I've come across with AVL, and I haven't been here that long, but I do have seven clients with AVL and they cross a lot of industry sectors and it's the outside parties who welcome the idea of having that fractional person in with the CPA, as well as having someone, and this is, I think, a little bit unique to AVL, that, we, that you can actually bring in a controller and a staff accountant to not only create the financial back office, but continue to manage it for you until you get to a point that you need a permanent person. So if... You're, if I'm understanding you correctly, the outside parties, the bankers, the investors, the counterparties to said technology company are, are much more accepting of a fractional CFO uh, like an AVL or one of your peers than they were maybe uh, pre-crisis. Pre Absolutely. Got it. And one of the things that uh, as, as I was thinking about putting this show together, uh, ATL Alts, I had come from, you know, capital markets and being a banker and underwriting, you know, third party uh, investment managers and the idea that there weren't projections and financials and there wasn't governance and there weren't um, folks just overseeing the financial and accounting decision making um, I just didn't have as much exposure to the earlier stage growth stage companies. And the exposure that I have gotten has really uh, made me realize that on one hand, it's quite interesting that because of the amount of liquidity that's in the market today, a lot of these earlier stage companies in particular are financeable or are getting financed without some of the things that you would probably expect to see, at least in a growth stage company. So uh, I don't want to get too far ahead because I want to talk about where we are in this in the cycle and liquidity. But where does a early stage technology company or an early stage growth company, uh, whether it's a SaaS business or a manufacturing business, where do they start? You, you mentioned those institutional investors. Maybe they come in in round B or a series B. But when do they start needing to pick up the phone? and ask their CPA, hey, do we need a CFO? Do we go hire somebody? Do we go fractional? Like at what, are, what are the some of the pain points going to be? Is it getting turned down for financing? Is it getting turned down for investment? Uh, where, what do you see at the hallmarks? I don't see as an abrupt or, or, or high level important decision that, or, or high level uh, issue that results in it as much as I see daily nuance. Okay. And, and that daily nuance, oh, we we've got we have a credit card that just got declined because we forgot to pay the bill. Oh, the bank, you know, we we have to lease a new piece of office space. We can't do uh, temporary offices anymore. Now all of a sudden the lessor wants to see historical financial statements and, and buy we're out of luck because we don't have them. Daily operational issues that, that could have been alleviated upfront by installing a, what I call a little bit of discipline in the finance function early on prevents those mishaps 
and in turn those mishaps, which they sort of disrupt the cadence of a an, or the flow of an early stage business when they have to stop what they're doing with their tactical and strategic initiatives and fix this little tiny problem that didn't need to be because those receipts were in the shoebox. I think that's where CPAs and some CPAs actually do provide some of this type of financial guidance for their clients. But we've also found, at least I found at ABL, even the CPAs doing the compilations at year end or, or doing a review for, for investment purposes, usually we don't do audits at early stage, but reviews are pretty common nowadays, um, as, as well as um, any other you know, reporting issue. A lot of times these CPA firms that are already in these clients doing their tax returns, they even welcome us because now that there's an intermediary who speaks their language and can help them get their job done a lot easier by using someone like ABL or a fractional CFO as a conduit to get that information flow going and at the same time, allow the C-suite and directly below to concentrate on the operational tasks at hand, operational and business development, sales, marketing tasks at hand, and leave the what we'll call the boring work to someone like us. When you when you step into an engagement with a a company, whether they're an early stage company and they're on the path of maybe wanting to raise venture money or they're financing their growth in other ways, what what is a typical engagement look like? Because I know that your firm does more than just the CFO work. You guys probably help in governance. You mentioned all the enterprise software. I mean, you can't run a company today without a lot of these investments in technology and getting your tech stack uh, correct is, a, is such a big part of, of growing and scaling a company. So what is, what is a typical sort of engagement start I mean, are you coming in and doing more of, a, of an assessment? What does it look like? I would say that the, the typical engagement, uh, what we would prescribe as our typical, typical engagement, because they usually don't end that way or at least progress that way. But we would call the typical, typical engagement someone who is post-seed round. They're probably post-revenue. They might even have QuickBooks Online. They don't have a chart of accounts, which will tell management what's really going on. Um, so they have an unstructured set of chart of accounts. Um, they, uh, their monthly reporting is delayed or non-existent. They'll just push the button and print out a, an income statement and balance sheet when, when they absolutely need it. Otherwise, they're not really focusing on that because they have KPIs that are more operationally oriented at the present time. And of course, usually they've got a pile of money that they just got in the bank and they're excited about spending it. Um, what we do is we, the typical engagement for us would be coming in and building the financial stack from the ground up. Meaning we'll come in and maybe take a look at that set of QuickBooks and decide management, you'd really like to see things reorganized as follows. And they generally speaking agree. The second thing we would do is develop weekly and monthly reporting. Now, a lot of small companies nowadays, I'm finding pretty much uh, almost everybody has a weekly cash flow forecast. We're not going to say that it's really useful. We're not going to say that it's that accurate, but there is, generally speaking, someone in the organization who's taking a look at the weekly expenditures. Now we, we will revamp those as well, make them much more accurate, give them something to rely on, and of course, take control of that process. So the, CF, the CEO or the COO or co-founders, so to speak, are not spending all their evenings typing on a spreadsheet. Secondarily, we'll produce monthly reporting packages. And we will focus not only on, we'll call it the integrity or, or the reliability of the financial reporting, but we will also start to suss out financial 
oriented key performance indicators that we believe management co-founders should be looking at. So we, and we will use that based on, we'll, we'll derive those based on best practices. In some cases, you'd be surprised at how a KPI for a construction business might be useful in a SaaS business. By the same token, I found, um, and I do have a construction clients and I do have SaaS clients or e-commerce clients. You'd be interested to know that we've taken, for example, in the SaaS space, the concept of things, innocuous things like deferred revenue, where someone pays for a yearly subscription, but the company can't recognize that revenue until the, the subscription is actually being used over that period. We've actually applied some of those same concepts to construction businesses who would otherwise be, technically speaking, cash basis accountants, accounting. And so there's so that would be our, our, our ultimate goal is to get those weekly cash flows, monthly reporting, restructured charts of accounts, accuracy, reliability. Again, it comes back to a little discipline in the organization. And yeah. now I, I, I preface all that by saying that's not usually how it happens. A lot of times we get brought into a business and then what we do, and, we, and, and it is definitely well-received by the clients in that all of those little day-to-day -day problems that occur in the finance world, we, we generally speaking, take those over. So in, in most of my clients, I'm a fiduciary. I sit at the CFO role. My controller or staff accountant sits in those roles on an organizational chart we actually manage the finances for the company. And that means things like I have a client that when they want to draw down on their line of credit, I'm usually the one who makes the decision on their behalf. And I'm the one who actually calls or emails the bank and says, I want to draw down. And we have authority to do that on behalf of the client. So really a, a fiduciary role. My I have controllers and staff accountants that have access to banking information. They do the bank reconciliations. They will make the transfers between entities. They will assist the company with paying their bills. So really what we do is we, I can't say we replace the entire finance unit because they don't exist in the first place, but we essentially fill that entire role from top to bottom often, generally speaking, for a period of time and anywhere from one to three years. Given the proliferation of, of early stage investing, and I, I, I want to talk a little bit about the different options that uh, growing companies, technology companies and otherwise have at their disposal today as we're awash in liquidity. But before we do that, all the things that you just described, you know, you talked about uh, putting in place controls and use the term discipline. I, I know you talked about that um, before we, 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 uh, when we first met and you talked about the, you know, the use of EOS and I'm a big, big EOS fan. One of the things I've, I've observed with a lot of earlier stage tech companies, it's so focused on the future and there's not as much focus and emphasis from a diligence standpoint on, you know, you'll see revenue numbers and you'll see, you know, growth projections. And again, a lot of the operational uh, centric metrics, uh, but oftentimes you may not see like a real robust business model. So I want to ask you from an investor standpoint, if, if we had angel investors that were listening to our show and were interested in identifying, you know, the next big tech company or the next great growth investment, do you think that it's too much to say they got to have a CFO or a fractional CFO? And if they don't, you know, that's something that you, Either you should ask management when they plan to implement, or um, or is it possible that an early stage, you know, revenue generating company can be doing all these things uh, that that you just mentioned? Because I I'm I'm curious to hear your perspective. I, I think that the the need exists. However, I think that depends on the composition of the co-founders. Yeah. So, for example. I have a client, they're actually quite large. We cannot really call them a startup anymore uh, because they're well into eight digits of revenue on an annualized basis. And they actually drop a decent supply of that revenue to the bottom line. So they're doing quite well for themselves. However, in this particular case, 
there's actually a COO who on top of running a business that is just perfect, every, nobody ever misses a beat in the organization because of this particular COO. This particular COO also has a finance and accounting background. So a lot of time now that works out very well for me in there because he and I can talk the same talk. I don't feel at any point in time like I'm talking over his head when I start explaining a more complex financing structure. And generally speaking, we have a very good rapport because of that. Now, in that particular case, as much as the people above me would hate to hear this, I wonder sometimes now that the company is in a certain phase that they do need someone like me in place. But if they weren't quite in that phase, I would question my own value in the organization if for no other reason that I know the COO, if he had another four hours a day in his life, um, that he could handle it on his own. So that would be a case where there isn't a necessity. However, in a lot of, particularly the, the tech companies, they, like you're talking about, in a lot of those cases, what you wind up with is you wind up with uh, a great sales and marketing person as the CEO. You end up with a fantastic, well-rounded technology person as a COO. And then you wind up with a CTO, which really, generally speaking, will also act as a chief information officer. Now, none of those three really have a deep base in, say, financial accounting. Plus, they've served those distinct roles and they don't need the distractions. That would be a case based on that composition and those types of personality profiles. That's where we would absolutely be needed. And I would advise an, uh, an investor going in for a seed or series A, usually as individuals, I would ask for that. Right. I think that's where that would where where we would we would insert ourselves to make sure like again all the I's are dotted and T's crossed. But it seems like it's so much more today, given the proliferation of investors that are seeking to back growing companies and all the strategic financial options that a growing company has at its disposal that out after getting in place the controls and putting in place the infrastructure to scale the business from an accounting and finance standpoint, some of the other more creative things that somebody like you're like you bring Michael in terms of uh, having worked at a you know major public accounting firm, having been the CFO now for a number of companies across a lot of industries, you actually probably bring a lot of creativity, I would assume, to thinking through different financial structures, different ways they can organize the business, even from a legal standpoint. So maybe you can talk a little bit about what do founders and, and uh, investors, what are the things that they, uh, that they, that they receive from a, fact, a fractional CFO um, on top of all the things that you mentioned when you started engagement? Because I would imagine you can then sit with that board and that management team and actually think about alternative financing structures, different sources of capital. Uh, and I want to I want to ask your perspective on that, plus where we are in the in the capital markets in the cycle, um, how long you know you think it continues. Okay. Well, I think first of all, I think what uh, someone like a fractional CFO brings to play as an intermediary between those founders or co-founders and the investment constituents, no matter what the round they're on, but we're going to presume that they, we're talking about early rounds. I think what you get is you get a uh, something of a disinterested intermediary, someone who actually, rather than be uh, overly excited about the business and providing their sales pitch, you also have someone in the organization now that you can communicate with on a more pragmatic level. Meaning, where are the whole, meaning, where, Michael, where are the holes in this business plan? 
and, and having trust coming from the co-founders to say, please explain to them in detail what those, what those risk factors are. That's what they want us to do. Um, they want to continue selling. They want to continue growing. And they're going to, they're going to, they're risk avert. They're not risk averse. They're going to push things to the limit. So what a fractional CFO or any kind of finance person inserted in the organization at that level does is bring a different perspective as well as a clear, concise communication of all those different risk factors. I think that's like, that answers more or less question one. Now, what stage are we in right now? I think we're in a stage where liquidity is still flowing freely. Um, we are raising rounds like we have for the last seven or eight years based on headcount. Um, the more headcount we have, the more the higher our valuation um, is justified by and so forth. Uh, when will that end? I have absolutely no idea. I think that could end six weeks from now. I think it could end in 2024. Um, our, our masters at the Federal Reserve are going to have a big say in what happens there. Nevertheless, a lot of that liquidity, of course, is trickling down into the venture realm, as well as in the, a lot of more individual or angel investors now are looking at putting smaller chunks into, into different uh, businesses. And um, it remains to be seen. However, I do not think that that diminishes the value of having a finance team in place at almost any organization. And he, but you don't necessarily need to be permanent. And this is where the value proposition comes in for having finance people, those disinterested intermediaries, is that the cost of a full-time chief financial officer in an organization almost always exceeds the cost of having someone like myself, as well as a controller and staff person in there keeping the books. It's not a full-time job early on in the organization. So why have a full-time stack? The, one of the conversations I was having this last week was with an investment banker who helps finance growth companies. And we were talking about this stage a company gets, um, you know, their, their post-revenue, they might be on the cusp of profitability. And the way that this investment banker and I, you know, he was explained to me, that is a very hard to finance uh, part of a company's life cycle. And, and there are financing sources out there, you know, whether it's ABL or it's MEZ or it's mezzanine uh, or it's, you know, some kind of junior capital that can provide flexible capital. Um, but I wanted to talk to you about that because this, uh, this banker, you know, having lots and lots of transaction experience was saying, you know, those, those companies are, you know, primed to be uh, you know, bigger, faster, but certain banks run into issues with them. Um, venture investors maybe don't feel they're growing fast enough. And, or if they're not a tech company, they're not as attractive to venture capital. And I want to hear your take on that because you're inside of some of these companies. And yes, on this show, ATL Alts, we interview folks that are running venture funds, but we also interview folks that are in the private equity or in the credit space. Um, and, and so I want to get this perspective on growth companies. And I want to hear from you, is what that investment banker is saying to me, do you find that to be typical, that it, it does require a little more creativity? Or is there so much capital out there today that it's just a matter of knowing who to go to and how to present the story in the right way. And obviously, if they've put their financial house in order, um, using jargon, um, and it's a good business, uh, that there, there's financing out there. Could you just talk about that a little bit? 
Sure. And let's, and let's talk first. I appreciate you differentiating between venture capital and private equity yeah. because they're both very active, yeah. even at the lower level now, which has become, it's a surprising new phenomenon. Now that said, let me take a step back and we look at the way venture capital traditionally invested in companies using preferred equity. Of course, that uh, a lot of that unwound during the GFC, as well as even if we look back towards the 2000s internet era, um, a lot of those things changed. And now all of a sudden, uh, a, a simple liquidation preference uh, and, a, you know, and, a, and a potential for upside was not enough. We started, then you start a migration towards convertible debt, where, of course, that liquidation preference hopped way up, um, even above the equity holders. And uh, when we wound down businesses during the 2000s and the 2008, 2009, 10 era, um, there were assets that were available for liquidation, whether they be a platform or some inventory or something like that. Now what we have is, and again, venture capitalists are very creative, the most creative of them all. We now have things like safes, which are a way to, of course, infuse equity into the business without uh, $50,000 legal bills. Um, Maybe you could stop and explain us a, a safe, a typical transaction, because uh, I've heard more about these and I, I'd love to you know, help educate our audience about when, when if I'm an angel investor mm-hmm. and I'm interested in XYZ company and they are using a specific structure, a vehicle, a node or a safe to raise money, am I really getting equity? Or am I investing in something sure. that gives me the right to equity? Help me understand that. More or less. And now I, I, I don't proclaim to be the expert in equity capital structures. Sure. Um, I'm more of a, I like debt a little bit more myself. However, a simple agreement for future equity is essentially a document that allows you to actually purchase that equity at a future point. It's kind of a cross between actually receiving the common or preferred and, and say an option. Um, But what it does is it eliminates tons of paperwork, as well as inserting that equity piece up into a waterfall where things can get complicated by additional additional raises, as well as trickle down of dilution, that type of thing. So just again, simple agreement. Interesting. Um, Interesting. And it sounds it sounds like it's a way for uh, for for a way for early stage companies to avoid, you said, costly legal bills and create uh, a mechanism that doesn't overcomplicate the capital stack at later successive rounds. Okay. Absolutely. So you talk, you, yeah. So you were, you were going to, so many accelerators doing it. Right, right, right. Uh, so you were going to talk about the, dis, you know, distinguishing between uh, venture and private equity. Yes. And, and where does growth, I guess, fit into that when you look at the, uh, you look at a business that you're, where you're an interim CFO. Well, you, 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 there's been a bit of a merger. So yeah. we, we, you, you, just, you distinguish between the two, venture capital, meaning traditionally equity infused into a potentially pre-revenue startup with uh, a lot of growth potential uh, versus private equity, which we commonly think of as buyout, buyout folks. Now, surprisingly to see that buyout folks are now doing things like by a, a, a rolling up Amazon storefronts mm-hmm. for the purpose of building Amazon retail conglomerates within that ecosystem. A lot of that's being done by buyout players. And you're also seeing activity amongst competitors, competitors buying each other out. One competitor does really well on Shopify. Another one, it does terrible at their own web presence, but does very well on Amazon. You're seeing activity in those realms, M&A work in those realms as well. But I think, again, the most surprising one uh, and interesting one are private equity firms buying out e-commerce platforms uh, for the purpose of building brand conglomerates. Um, and those, uh, there's a lot of activity in that space right now as well. And then the, 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 one of the one of the things I want to talk about is control. So obviously, when it comes to private equity, I've always associated private equity with control investments, right? You mentioned buyouts, um, and on the venture side, we're talking about typically, you know, there's different rounds of venture, but you know, A, B, kind of C round. You're talking about non-control investments, growth 
I would associate with non-control investments as well, typically. Um, who is that investor base? And what, what are they looking for? Again, I characterize it as they're, they're revenue generating companies, you know, maybe, I don't know, one to 10 million of revenue or three to 10 million of revenue. They're just at the cusp of profitability. Why do they, why is that uh, portion of the, of the life cycle of a company a little bit more difficult to finance? Is it because venture's forgotten about them and they're not cash flow positive and PE therefore is not seeing the ability to put debt on and create a multiple and leverage or, or where, where is growth companies uh, fit between the two? Well, I think in the, in the venture realm, you're really looking at moats and hockey yeah. sticks. Yeah. Okay. That's a, I don't, it doesn't matter if a, a company has, if a company has 5 million in revenue and drops four to the bottom line and they're growing at a 10% clip per month, they're going to, they're going to attract venture capital no matter what they're doing in the private equity space. What we're seeing is not the traditional, the, the stuff that we might've learned as we were going, well, I'm a few years older than you probably, but going through college, we watched Drexel Burnham Lambert, Michael Milken, um, piling sub debt onto companies for buyouts, such as Nabisco. KKR, sure. Nabisco sure. Yep. What, well, what I'm seeing a lot more of now is private equity firms, they're boutique. They do, they use equity almost exclusively and what they do is they, they come in and they buy controlling interests in traditional businesses that may also be growing, we'll call, let's say, construction, uh, with a view towards buying out four or five or six businesses in either similar geographics and or similar targets, target markets um, in order to primarily for administrative leverage. And really to build a platform. I mean, that's that's what I hear when I talk to private equity uh, folks is, is, you know, they may have, you know, two or three platforms that they're building. And it's, you know, it's very, there's some administrative synergies between all of them, but they may be building a platform in healthcare and a platform in, you know, tech and a platform in, you know, maybe services, um, B2B services. And they're sharing administrative services across the three but they're bolting on companies and doing tuck-in acquisitions and they're doing, you know, not rapid transactions, but they're, you know, they've got a dedicated team that has deep domain and industry expertise in that vertical. They know bankers, they know accountants, they know lawyers, they know where to source deals and they want to expand that platform. Uh, You just said it, Andres, the key is the platform. Yeah. And almost everyone who's entered or called on one of the businesses that I'm working in, says, we'd like to tell you about our platform. And that's exactly the case. The other, the other thing that they do in most of these buyouts is they generally tend to use them to provide a certain, a certain level of liquidity in, in businesses where there may be, say, two or three founders of the original company and say a couple of them, one or more of them are getting tired of the business. They want to move on. However, in these closely held enterprises, it's not easy to buy out your partners unless you planned way ahead with something like a non-qualified benefit plan or some type of key man structure. Um, They don't have that liquidity. And what these buyout firms are doing is part of their platform is ostensibly allowing for the removal of deadwood. And I don't mean deadwood in a derogatory manner. I think that a lot of people that work on a business for 10 years, you're not always going to be able to maintain the focus of all the, the owners. Um, some people just want to move on. And that they, what the buyout firms do is provide that as well as keep the people involved that are really interested in being part of a growth story. Um, so they provide capital, um, they provide leverage, um, and they, they tend to focus on who are the leaders in each of these businesses and do we, and we need them to continue operating those businesses under our platform. And I have a case right now that's looking exactly like that, where there is, there's two, two owners, 
One of the owners is really just not interested anymore. They've done very well for themselves, uh, but one of the owners just wants to move on, kind of move into a semi-retirement mode. And one of the other owners is still pretty hungry and wants to take things much further. Um, and so we're talking to someone about inserting ourselves into that platform to meet everybody's goals. Sure. You brought up the point of, uh, of, of management teams, and I want to touch on board dynamics uh, and, and the importance of, you know, when you get the, the right team in place uh, from the standpoint of a, of a fractional CFO to help um, instill discipline, put in place controls, put in place the right reporting, obviously, then maybe you're looking at alternative financings. I would assume you also find yourself having to do I don't want to call it cleanup work, but restructuring operational, and maybe it's more strategic, but I want to hear you talk a little bit about how the strategic and and governance dynamics of what you do come into play, because in order for a company to go to the next level, like you said, sometimes you have that, that dead wood, and sometimes it's just easier for companies not to deal with it than it is for them to bring in somebody with a fresh perspective that's objective, that has no dog in the hunt. And just sort of mediate and figure out, right, like, here's how everybody can kind of win. It, it won't happen quickly, but do you get involved in that type of work or? Call us a, call someone like myself, a perpetual feasibility study. Um, so, so a board, a board, uh, and, and not all of our, not all of the businesses, we, a lot of them are closely held. So the board members might also be the co-founders sure. as well as the people operating the business every day. But that feasibility study is a constant. Um, we go into a company and they might have two or three subsidiaries that are really in and of themselves. Um, they, they either partnered up with someone else early on in the business. There's a combination in place. One side of the business really took that growth trajectory seriously. The other side falls, falls by the wayside, so to speak. And in some cases, there's a need to say, buy somebody out. Um, and so we're the ones who actually, without a finance function, there's no way to calculate valuation, coordinate a, a, a valuation from an outside party, structure, structure an agreement um, without our help. And what we do is we come in and we say, hey, look, Here's how, here's how much free cash flow the business is spitting off right now. Here's how much we can pay to allow that one party to disappear and move on their way and or buy another entity or sell another entity. Um, our interactions with those owners is constant. And, and there are constant, particularly amongst dynamic businesses, there's a constant flow of ideas going out there. Should we, be, should we move from DTC into retail? Um, what's it going to cost us? Um, our, we have this existing businesses was in retail. It's dragging on our earnings. We're going to spin that off. Hey, Michael, help us find a buyer for that. Uh, so at that higher level, that is exactly what the fractional CFO in isolation does. Now, my control, a controller and a staff accountant get to continue keeping the books and continue the flow of information while I become the sounding board for a lot of these internal debates. Sure. Yeah, you, you become that uh, consigliere that the, that the CFO probably you know, is when they're embedded in an organization, um, at least the firms I've worked at, that, that becomes you know, such an important uh, perspective that the CEO and the president and the COO typically need. Um, because the numbers, if they're done correctly, the numbers, as they say, the numbers don't lie. So <laughs> I want to, uh, I, I want to wrap up by, by getting your perspective on, you talked about like not knowing kind of where we are in, in, in the cycle. And I appreciate your, your, your candor. Cause, uh, cause I, I'm, I always give that same response, you know, who knows we've, we've been, you know, we've been, uh, heavily supported by the fed, but having said that, um, what do you see out there as the optimism, optimistic um, points in the economy uh, that give the CEOs and the, the management teams that are engaging you, what gives them optimism uh, that, that is it in, in the supply chain that there's so much opportunity and there's so much, you know, products sitting on a container that's just waiting to come here into the U.S.? 
what what are you hearing and what are you seeing that gives you optimism? I'm seeing people who really are keeping their 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 ear to the the tracks, hearing about things like supply chain issues really early on and planning ahead. I will give you two examples um, that are pinpoint. First of all, I have a I have both clients in CPG. Uh, one of is in in I won't even begin to know the sector. Ask the sectors because then you'll know exactly who the companies are. Um, but uh, I have one client who has actually, over the last four months, has actually withdrawn some of their customer acquisition initiatives and done a lot of paying down vendors and acquiring a lot of inventory as an, an advance shot over the bow in case those supply chain issues start to hurt their business heading into the holiday season. I, and, and we're talking tripling inventory values in their warehouse and cutting their payables by 50% on a monthly basis so that they have the liquidity and they have the assets in place and they're not gonna skip a beat. I have another client who actually packed up shop from Colorado because they were receiving all of their inventory out of the West Coast. And of course, we've all heard the stories about the anchors and bursts missing. They're all filled up on the West Coast and there are hundreds of ships sitting off the coast waiting to get a berth. They found out that actually the problems are much less severe on the East Coast. So they actually sold their warehouse moved to the East Coast, buying another warehouse, moving all their inventory in there, and they're going to start taking their containers from a port out East because it's going to save them anywhere from eight to 12 weeks to get the product in. So there are actually a lot of small-time entrepreneurs that are really thinking about these grand issues that in past times, and I think this has a lot to do with social media and the fact that we have a, you know, this, this one minute news cycle, anybody can read the stories and plan around them. And there's a, those are two examples of clients who really saw things. They saw the, 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 the train on the other side of the tunnel while the light was still really dim, said, we're not going to get run over. We're going to make these big tactical changes now in order to prevent us from getting hurt later. Now that said, I, I give them a lot of credit for their prescience. However, they also were smaller, they're in niche businesses and they're nimble, which allowed them to move faster. So I can't blame GM and Ford or even Tesla for not being able to produce up to capacity because they're missing chips overseas, they're simply not as nimble. You know, sure. GM can't just can't take their factories and move them next door to TMSE in order to the, so they're the first in line for the chips. Um, they just can't do that. So um, th that those small nimble companies, I think they're they're going to survive. And making those moves, when I heard them, hey, I had a I had a COO who said. Can we afford to do this? Can we afford to pay down our payables by 50% and jack up our inventory levels? How's that going to look for us come November? And I'm the one who turns around and says, not only is it a brilliant idea, <laughs> but we'll survive. And, and, then, and then, of course, two weeks later, they're saying, Michael, can you go out and start you know, dipping your toes in the lending waters just in case? And then, of course, that's where the fun stuff happens. Right. Yeah. Yeah, definitely prepare, prepare them even further. Mm -hmm, for sure. No, that's, that's great. I, uh, I appreciate you sharing those perspectives. Uh, Cause I definitely in, in this podcast, I'm, I'm, I'm always trying to capture, you know, the, the voice, the perspective and the sort of on the ground reality of, of entrepreneurs, small business owners, people that are, you know, really the engine of, of the economy. I mean, the, 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 the media covers a lot of the fortune 500 and fortune 1000, but um, obviously those are, really following what's happening uh, in the trenches with small, medium-sized businesses know that's where, you know, the vast number of people are employed. And, and as those companies go, so goes, you know, the economy. So 
I, um, I want to transition unless you have a final point you'd like to make to, you know, how you keep on top of your game and how you bring such pressing advice to your clients. Well, I, I want to say that I can't take all the credit. Between the, the late 1990s and the early 2020s, entrepreneurs have become significantly more sophisticated. They listen to the news. They digest a lot of information nowadays. And they tend to make, even, even younger entrepreneurs tend to make pretty wise decisions nowadays. So I think that's a part of being able to communicate on social media, um, having everybody now realizes the value of their networks, particularly their close networks and their advisors to help them with those things. And I'm seeing a lot more, uh, I'm actually the one who is a lot more optimistic about my clients sometimes than even the clients, because I say, wow, I'm really not like the smartest guy in the room here. These are some pretty smart folks. I'm very impressed with the things that they're doing. And this is going to be a lot of fun working with these folks with the notion that I hope I learned something myself. Yeah. Well, and, and that brings me to, to, uh, to the questions. I, I always enjoy asking people about what they're doing, of course, professionally and how they kind of got to the, to the success that they've had, which you clearly have had lots of success. But it's also... You know, for me, the, the 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 most interesting people that I've had the opportunity to interview on the show are also just naturally very curious. They're always trying to meet interesting people. They're always trying to, I don't want to say gain advantage from those people, but they're always trying to compare, um, you know, notes and systems and books. And and I know one of the things you and I hit it off on was you talked about our 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 sort of passion for instilling discipline and, and using something called EOS to do that at companies. Um, so that brings me to the, the questions as we wrap up. What are some of the things that you read, whether on a regular basis or, or, um, or some of the favorite books uh, that I guess have, have stuck with you uh, or that you find on your, uh, your nightstand today? Well, I think as far as books are concerned right now, my, my workload is such that uh, the books that were on the nightstand have probably got shoved under the bed right now. Um, and then I am, I'm trying to keep pace with my clients who are getting information. They're having to digest information on the fly. So I spend most of my time, I'm a traditional RSS feed reader guy, and I have, you know, 150 different sources of information. And I just open up Vienna in the morning those headlines flow through. I pick what I want to read. I would tend to say that my favorites are probably, you know, WSJ, Bloomberg, Zero Hedge, uh, for kind of both the optimistic and pessimistic sides of finance, um, with Zero Hedge, of course, being the eternal bears and Bloomberg and Wall Street Journal being the eternal optimists. Um, I do stray away from CNBC and, and Yahoo because I believe they're a little bit more marketing oriented than they are uh, information, you know, base information oriented. But that's really where my work, that's really where my, my material comes from. It is, it is, I have to stay on top of things as timely as what my clients are doing. Now, I know that they're, they're pulling their information from things like social media. I'm an old school guy still using RSS. But I want to I want to know what they're reading, and so most everything I'm consuming nowadays is very very timely. And I spend uh, probably open up that feed reader four or five times a day and scan through articles and just decide what's interesting. Focusing on things like actions, money raising, and stuff happening in industries that my clients are attached to. And in a lot of cases, I'll find that I'm just really referring articles to them. Hey, you should read this. This is applicable to you. I do the same thing with networking. I, I don't network on a lunch club or LinkedIn or anything like that for the purpose of garnering some value myself. I'm always kind of listening to what other people have to say and saying, is this person someone I should be introducing to one of my clients? Because they can probably add some value. And then when we talk about people in the finance sector, talk about people in direct marketing, places like that. I'm finding myself referring a lot of people that I meet through networking events and so forth, particularly to my clients, because they're going to add value to them. And then hopefully that makes my job a little easier. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, it's a holiday weekend as we as we wrap up um, and you're in Colorado. So 
I always like to ask my guests, you know, when they have downtime, you know, because most of the really successful people I talk to, they have found a system that works for them. You know, some people I meet are, I get up at four in the morning. That's my time. I meditate. I work out. I prepare for the day. And then once the day starts during business hours, you know, it's meetings, it's calls, you know, um, what works for, for Michael? What have you found over the years works? And you're in a part of the country where I assume you get out and enjoy outdoors. I mean, people that live in Colorado who I meet, you know, that's a big part of, of being out there. But what do you find works for you to just kind of get away, recharge, refill your bucket so you can be sharp and uh, deliver for your clients? 100% disattachment. Yeah. I'm an angler, so I go fishing. Yeah. I tend to go fishing places where there is no cell service. I don't bring my cell phone. If someone goes fishing with me and they pull out their cell phone, I ask them to turn it off. Let's concentrate on the water. I will drive 100 miles and my phone will be sitting at my, in, in my desk drawer the entire time. Love so it. the best way I think to uh, recharge is to completely disattach yourself from all of that funnel of information, text messages, meeting schedules, everything. Give yourself no reason to look at any potential source of information. And that prevents you from having to worry about what happens when you get back. All right. Well, we're going to make a date to, uh, to do some fishing. I'm going to get myself out to Colorado. Sounds like, sounds like uh, a, a great plan. I'll drop the cell phone in my luggage and uh, I'll get it when we come back. Exactly. Michael Gracie, uh, principal with AVL Growth Partners. Thank you so much for joining me today on the ATL Alts podcast. Andres, it was a pleasure. Thank you very much. Appreciate you inviting me.